This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, tonight we are in the middle of a brand new series here at Courageous Church called Renewal, and it is the heartbeat of God for this church that we would grab a hold of all the new things that I believe God wants to do in the earth today. And I'm excited about it because I believe that not only is Jesus interested in making all things new in your life, but he's also interested in your friends and your family, come on, and your neighbors and your coworkers and that boss that drives you crazy. Come on, Jesus wants to make all things new in his life as well. And so big is this thought, so big is this, you could say, cry of God's heart that Jesus actually comes to us in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 5, I believe we have it on the screen, to tell us that he is making all things new. And what I love about the book of Revelation is, is that, number one, it's primary purpose is to unveil Jesus to us. It's not about the end times. It's not about the battles to come and all the crazy things that we know will eventually take place. It's actually more about revealing Jesus Christ. The word revelation is apocalypsis in the Greek, and it means unveiling. It's the unveiling of Jesus and his heart for us that I believe he wants us to know. Meaning there are things about Jesus that you and I have yet to discover that he wants to unveil. Say it with me, unveil, unveil to us. He wants to reveal them. And the book of Revelation is one of the greatest pictures of what Jesus is doing right now. He's at the right hand of the father and he's praying. He's interceding. And you know what he's, he's praying for? You. All of you are on his heart right now. How cool is that? Right? He didn't just finish his work on the cross, although, wow, what a wondrous and mighty work that was. But he sat down in perfect peace with all authority because of what he has accomplished, and he did so so that he could make intercession for you. Intercession is just a fancy word that we like to use, which means that he steps into the gap on your behalf, and he starts praying for you. And what is he praying? A lot of people want to know. Well, here it is. He's praying for new things to happen in your life. He says this, behold, I am making all things new. Now we know this applies in a general way across the board and what he's doing all throughout the world. It's it's a global message to the church. I am making all things new. I'm reconciling all things to myself. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, be reconciled unto God. It's the ministry and message of reconciliation that Paul actually says he's handed over to the church. That's actually what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to take what he has given us in Christ Jesus and go and make all things new. Go and reconcile people and hearts back to the Father. Isn't that awesome? I think it's awesome. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's the expectation that we have as the people of God that God wants to bring new things into our life. The old has passed away. Do you hear that language? God's not interested in the old. How many of you are thankful for that? I'm thankful because when I look at my past, there's things that I'm not proud of. Come on, you got things in your past and maybe even in your present that you're not so proud of. But God's not interested in the old. He's not interested in what you did yesterday or what you did a year ago, as great as those things might have been. 
You may have served Jesus 10 years ago and done amazing, extraordinary things in his name. Guess what? He's no longer interested in that. He's interested in what he wants to do today. And my hope is that as a church, we would grab a hold of this. What is it I'm really getting at? It's an expectation. It's a holy sense of urgency that God wants to do something extraordinary in this city. We sing about it tonight. Come awaken your people. Come awaken your city. Right? We want to see souls awakened throughout this city. And it starts with us. It starts with God making all things new in your heart, Kimberly. In your heart, Jonathan. In my heart, Jason. And the Bible assures us that when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we're going to become new creations. That's what he's doing. He's making all things new. He's causing old things and old habits and old ways of thinking to pass away so that the new can come. The Bible says that we are renewed and transformed, rather, by the renewal of our mind, by having God bring us into a place where we're thinking new thoughts and doing new things. Now, here's the problem. The catch is, is that we get stuck. We get stuck in habits. We get stuck in routines. We get stuck in patterns of thinking and paradigms. The Bible uses the word wineskin. We get stuck in old wineskins wanting God to do it the way that he did it. And for some of us who've been following Jesus a long time, there's nothing wrong with the way Jesus did things in a particular season. But how many of you know that may not exactly be the way he wants to do things today? Meaning we got to be willing to chase the wine and not the wineskin. Come on, somebody. We got to be willing to chase the winemaker, the vinter, the sommelier himself, Jesus, the one who makes water into wine. And what's so great about that miracle is it's an allusion to what God wants to do in us. He wants to take the old substance, the old things, which are perfectly fine, I guess, but he wants to transform them into something more, something more beautiful and amazing. And so the picture of wine and new wine is one that the Bible uses frequently. I believe that not only does Jesus want to do a new thing in us, but he wants to do a new thing through us. God, I want you to change my heart, but it can't be enough that my heart's changed just so that I can sing more songs and jump up and down for Jesus. It has to lead to change. It has to lead to action. It has to lead to me opening and yielding myself so that God can do something through my life. That's what we want. We want to be portals, channels, conduits. Am I using enough words? through which the Holy Spirit can flow. When I first became a Christian, uh, give me that cu cup of coffee if you don't mind. This is on the spot. I didn't plan this. We're rolling. We're improv tonight. When I first became a Christian, I looked at my life like a cup, and I said, God, come fill my life. And as you know, this is a, a what is this, a six-ounce cup? <laughs> Maybe a five-ounce cup? Eight ounces if you're lucky, how many of you know that eventually there's, there's something that's, you're going to hit your limit. You're going to, it's going to start to overflow. I would pour it out, but there's coffee in here, so I want to stay in the carpets. So I used to view my Christian life like this. God, come fill me. Yesterday I was poured out and I'm feeling empty today, so I run back to church. God, fill me. And I run back out into the world and I get poured out and I come back to church. God, fill me. And I used to view my life that way. If, if, if I could just get more of God, if I could just be filled up, if I could just, if I could just, if I, if I, if I, if I, if I, if I, 
I don't have the prop here tonight, but then I began to realize that our Christian life is more like a hose through which living water wants to flow, through which his life wants to flow, through which it will never, ever be too full for what he wants to do. I think for some of us, we need, thank you, Jonathan, sorry, sorry for touching it, I promise I don't have COVID. For some of us, we approach God with this mentality. God, fill me, fill me, fill me, fill me. And God's going, I want to fill you, but I want to flow through you. I want to change your heart so that I can bring change through your life. So that I can touch people through your life. So that I can cleanse lepers through your life. So that I can heal the sick through your life. So that I can raise the dead through your life. So that I can bring about change and renewal to all things and all creation through your life life. Church, that's God's heart for you tonight. Amen. Amen. But I believe that this is precipitated or precipitated upon us keeping first things first. And the label of my message tonight or title of my message for those of you that are taking notes is first things first. I believe God wants to help us keep first things first in our life. You know, it's not a coincidence that at the start of the new year, we're talking about new things. And I'm not interested in resolutions as great as those are. How many of you guys know resolutions come and go? Come on, we all start off with that weight loss goal at the the beginning of the year. And then two weeks in, we're right back to the cookies and snacks. Or is that just me? (laughs) But I believe that God wants to do new things in us. And I believe it's precipitated upon us keeping first things first. I want you to really focus in and hone in on this phrase, first things first tonight. What am I talking about when I say the words first things first? Well, we're going to get into that. When we think about first things, what we're really saying is what's most important. Or let me say it this way. What's primary in your life? Do you know? Most of us would say, well, okay, it's God, then spouse, then kids, then whatever, you know what I mean? But I want to ask us tonight, and I want, I want to make this personal for, ev- for every single one of us here tonight. What is the most important thing in your life? Like, really, when you think about it, the thing that you give most of your time and your talent and your treasure to, the thing that you, you value most, what is the most important thing in your life? Well, tonight, I want to talk about our relationship with God. And I believe that we live in a world today that is vying for our attention and our affection and our devotion to things that should not be primary or first. Are you tracking with me? Sometimes we allow good things in our life to become first. Um, This could be taking care of the bills, taking care of the kids, going to work, right? Spending time with people we love, doing activities that we enjoy, but they were never intended to be in the driver's seat of your life. They were intended to be in the back seat, meaning that there is a place in your life that God intended for only him to sit in and occupy. And that is the first place that we want to talk about tonight. 
Sometimes these good and necessary activities lead us to become overstuffed. And we end up living overcrowded lives and our hearts become overcrowded spaces. Anybody feel that way? Anybody ever been just so full of anxiety and stress because you're just so, you're so overloaded with life and the burden of life and everything that's swirling on around you? How many of you feel that way when you get on social media? More so than we need to. I got to tell you, confession time. This week I was able to get away and just pray. I went down to Las Vegas where my father-in-law lives. He lives just about 20 minutes outside of the strip and outside of the city. And uh, he offered me a room where I could go and just spend some time alone with the Lord. And I just began to pray and just really seek God for my life and for my family's life and for this church and for what God has in store for us in 2021. And I got to tell you, it took me a good two to three days just to unwind, just to disconnect because I was so wound up with all this stuff that had just overstuffed my heart, like just the swirlings of the election and, and politics and people and family members saying this and family members saying that and all of the hype and hoopla and circus of everything that's been going on this last year with COVID and quarantine and people losing their jobs and people that we love moving away and people that used to be a part of this church that are now gone. And I mean, when you think about it, 2020 was quite a crazy year. We talked about that last week. But what I realized was that I, my life had become so full and so overstuffed with all of this stress and anxiety and worldly concern. You know what the Bible calls it? Cares. It's the cares of the world. And what does Jesus say about the cares of the world? He says it will choke you. It will choke out your life. It will choke out the good thing that God wants to grow up within you. In Matthew, or excuse me, in, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable about the sower who sows the word. And he talks about these different soils that the seed fell upon. And one of the soils had thorns and weedy things that just came up and it says that it choked out the life. And that picture was a picture that God gave me for what I believe is happening all around us right now. People are allowing the cares of this world, getting quiet in here, to grow up with the good things that God has for us. And if we're not careful, those things are going to choke out the word. It's going to choke out the deposit that Jesus has made and is making in all of us. And so it took me a couple days just to untangle. I had to get out God's holy machete and just chop away. You know, you know what I'm saying? And that's a metaphor for me turning off my phone. <laughs> Isn't it so hard to do that, by the way? I read this report, the psychologist uh, report, while I was away, and, and he talks about how our brains are being rewired and reconditioned to think. And he makes the statement that the most important thing is the last thing you think about before you go to bed and the first thing you think about when you wake up. How many of you sleep with your phone next to your bed? Yeah, it's, it's my alarm clock. For most of you, it's your alarm clock. Remember back in the old day when you had the old alarm clock and you'd be like, oh shoot, I gotta go set my alarm clock? And so we use our phones as alarms, but for some of us, it's real, real easy to reach over and grab. And what's the first thing we see? Angry tweet, alert, political this, a friend's text, maybe your boss asking you why you're late. 
It's the first thing you think about and so oftentimes the last thing you go to bed. And this psychologist who's a leading psychologist says that it is actually rewiring our brains. It's resetting and renewing the chemistry of our minds to think a certain way and to respond and act a certain way. And so God began to just really address some things that I believe had grown up in me and just stress and frustration and whatever else, right? You name it, fill in the blank of things that I had allowed in my life to, to grow up as a weed that was choking me and strangling the life that God wants you and I to operate in. I'm talking about me tonight, but as the preacher, I get to just live out what you guys are doing in front of you. So I get to be your object lesson, as the teachers would say. And so it took a while to, to decompress. It took a while to unplug. It took a while to examine, to reflect, you know, all the things that you do. And I just came to the conclusion after a few days of praying that I'm not going back to that. I'm not going back, guys. Something's got to give. Because my family deserves more, my wife deserves more, my kids deserve better, and this church deserves better. So I'm making some changes. And I wouldn't be up here preaching this message tonight if I wasn't going to live this. So God said, Jason, your problem is that you don't keep first things first. You've allowed other things to become first in your life. You've allowed other distractions and activities, and things to choke out the life of you, and you're running, and you're trying to get somewhere, but you can't run because you're entangled, and thorns are digging into your life, and into your soul, and it's depleting your energy, and it's depleting your life, and it's depleting your joy, it's depleting your purpose, it's distracting you from your mission, and I was like, okay, God, take it easy, I get it. <laughs> we need to reset some things, we need to renew some things. And so God says, I want you to reestablish first things in your life. Jesus, aware of our tendency to look for life in all the wrong places, says this to us in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. And this is going to be our primary text tonight. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I want you to underline that or swipe that in your phone. And it says, but the sheep did not listen to them. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill, excuse me, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Jesus' heart for us, guys, is that we would know abundant life. I wonder if you would take a moment, just to be honest with yourself right now, to ask yourself this question. Are you experiencing Christ's abundant life? You don't have to answer out loud. But I want you to, to think about that question throughout our time here tonight. Are you experiencing, God, am I experiencing abundant life? And if not, why? Why is what's happening in the pages not happening in my life? Why am I not bearing forth the fruit that you want me to? Now, before we can fully grasp or understand what Jesus is alluding here to, I think it's important to note a couple things. Number one, in verse four, Jesus says that a shepherd's sheep know the voice 
of their shepherd and they follow him. In verse five, he goes on to say that the sheep will not follow the voice of strangers. That's really important. And he says that the sheep will actually flee from them for they don't recognize the stranger's voice. So right off the bat, Jesus establishes the greatest contrast within his ministry, that between sheep and what the text here says, strangers or thieves. Sheep and strangers. Jesus' lambs and robbers. I want you to see that contrast tonight. Before we can understand how important this and how pointed this statement is that Jesus is making, we need to understand the context of what's just happened. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you with that. In the previous chapter, in chapter 9, Jesus had just done a very public miracle. He just healed a blind man. The text says that the man was blind since birth. It means his whole life he's never seen the light of day. Could you imagine well into your 20s and 30s, and you've been blind your entire life. And so Jesus comes down to the pool at Siloam, and he passes by, and he takes mud, and he puts it in the man's eyes, and he heals, them, heals, Jesus, he heals the man in a very unorthodox way. And everybody's looking at him like, did Jesus just spit in that mud and just take that mud and put it in that guy's eyeball socket? Could you imagine? If like Jesus came in today and did that, we would all be like, we're out of here. This church is nuts. And don't worry, I'm not going to rub mud in anybody's eyes, okay? You guys are okay. But Jesus does this. The man is healed, and he goes to the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the time, and he tells them what Jesus had done. And they cannot accept it. They, they reject it entirely. They're like, no way, no how, there's no way this happened to you. So they get the man's parents, and the man's parents are a little afraid. They don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue for good, right? They got the special like VIP badge and the the whole like, you know, membership plan. And they don't want to lose their membership to Costco. And so they are like, we're not going to answer the question. You need to talk to our son. So they bring the, the blind man who was healed back in and they say, how did this happen? And so the blind man starts telling him again, it was Jesus. It's, and he starts really kind of laying into him. So the Pharisees, they lose their cool and they lose their temper and they kick the man out of the synagogue and the man has been, now Now the man's lost his membership to Costco and he can't go back. And so he's sad and he's kind of downpressed and bummed. But Jesus, the Bible says, actually finds the man and encourages them. And he says, who do you believe to be the son of man or the son of God? And he says, you are. <laughs> and then the text says that he worships Jesus. So in, in essence, he joins Jesus' crew. Meanwhile, the Pharisees were nearby and they hear this and they're so mad and they're so upset about what Jesus has done. I can't believe, Jesus, that you healed this man on the Sabbath day. I can't believe that you did it in a way that we wouldn't approve of, Jesus. This is the box we want, that we believe God should stay in, but you did things outside of the box, therefore you must die. That's essentially, guys, what's happened here. And so Jesus takes the man and accepts him and welcomes him, welcomes him into his fold. And the, the Pharisees are sitting there and they're upset and they're mad and they try to trick Jesus up. And Jesus says, actually, you're the ones that are guilty, implying that they're actually the ones that are spiritually blind. Do you see the contrast between who could really see and who was really blind? Okay, now that's important for you to understand that framework because it's right after this. 
right after this exact moment that Jesus tells this story about the sheep and the robbers. Now, growing up, I've always been taught the thief was the devil, right? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, it is true. The devil will lie to you, he will steal from you, and he will try to destroy you. Those are all very true things. But in the story, it ain't the devil that Jesus is talking about. Who do you think the sheep in the story are, guys? Who do you think the strangers and thieves are? It's quite obvious the contrast Jesus has set up here. And you can see why the Pharisees despise Jesus. Not only does he call them guilty, but he implies that they're spiritually blind. And now he's alluding to them being strangers and thieves. This is the backdrop, and it makes it so much more pointed when we see it this way. So let's take a closer look again at verses 7 through 11, going back, verse 7. So Jesus said to them, right, who's them? The Pharisees and his disciples and the blind guy. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I want you to underline that again. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, he says. If anyone enters by me, he or she will be saved, and I will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly, because I am the good shepherd. (laughs) So Jesus is calling these religious guys who think they got their life all together. He's saying, you're actually thieves and strangers and robbers to the purposes of God. And my sheep, they know my voice. They know what I'm really all about. And they can smell you coming from a mile away. Now, what do thieves do? They steal, right? That's, the, that's in the nature of a thief or a robber, to steal. They take what doesn't belong to them. But Jesus goes on to say that these thieves, these kinds of thieves in the story, will not just take what doesn't belong to them, but they'll also kill it and destroy it. In contrast, Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the door to life. And I am the good shepherd. Jesus is offering his sheep life abundantly, life to the full. Some translations say, like the ESV here, abundantly meaning spilling out all over the place. Messy. You can't contain it. You can't fill it up in the little coffee cup. It's it's too big of a raging rapid to fit into a little coffee cup. That's the picture Jesus is getting at here. And he's saying to us, just like the blind man, I want you to know my life abundantly. I want you to know that there's more than what you've been settling for. So why does this matter? How does this relate to first things? So I'm glad you asked that question. Jesus wants us to experience the life that he came to bring, that he went to the cross to give us. And that's what renewal is all about. See, I think there are thieves all around us on social media and in the entertainment world and in the news and in our everyday inboxes and in our lives and interactions that are ready to steal and kill and destroy the life that God wants you to have. And this is why, and we put a couple of them up there for you. This is why we got to be on the watch. We got to be alert. We can't be sleeping in 2021. We got to be awake. We got to be ready 
Because these thieves will come and they will bring distraction, they will bring destruction, and they will bring despair. Anybody feel or sense or experience any of these three things this last year? I think I can relate to all three. If I'm being honest, yep, if I'm being honest. And so Jesus says, look, guys, it may not be a specific people group or Pharisee or religious person in your life, but there are other forces from within and without that will take and steal and rob from you if you let them. One of the ways I think live thieves are permitted entry into our lives is through what I call a casual abandonment of keeping first things first. I'm talking about your relationship with the good shepherd. As his sheep, God wants you to hear his voice, but we don't always hear the voice of God, do we? That's because we're dealing with distraction. As his sheep, he wants us to follow his lead and his leadership, but we don't always follow his lead, do we? We, like sheep, always intend to go our own way. And where's our own way lead? To the second one, destruction. And as his sheep, he also wants us to know the pasture of his presence, which we've been singing about tonight and experiencing. But we don't always sense or feel his presence, do we? And that's because we get caught up in despair. And we see with despair loneliness and anxiety and worry and sadness. Why do these things happen to us? I believe the main reason is because we don't keep first things first. We allow other things to come in and we give them the primary place in our heart and life. Speaking to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. You have persevered, church, <laughs> and you've endured 2020 for my name, and you've not grown weary. Woo! Everybody's like, yeah, we did it! 2020's behind us! 2021 is going to be so much better! Yet, Jesus says, I hold this one thing against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Woo! This, by the way, is not a story about them. It's a story about us, in case you haven't figured it out. The Bible's not just a story about people that lived 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, two thousands of years ago. <laughs> it's a story about us today. And Jesus is saying to his church here at Ephesus, expressed to the angel, the messenger, the pastor of the church, you've done really well. You've done a lot of great things. You fed the poor. You laid hands on the sick. You did things in my name. You cast out demons and devils and you lifted up my name on Facebook and you posted that awesome coffee picture with that mug and that Bible verse and you told everybody all the good things that I've done for you. But there's this one thing I've been meaning to talk to you guys about. What is it, Jesus? Is it reward time? Is it prosperity time and blessing time? Are we, are we going to the next level? Jesus goes, no, you've forsaken your first love. Whew, if that doesn't hit you like a dagger, maybe this message ain't for you. Maybe it's just me. But he goes on to say, consider how far you've fallen, church. Repent, turn around, change your mind, and go do the things that you did at first. We're talking about first things first tonight. Jesus says, you've abandoned the love that you used to have for me. 
you've endured, you've not grown weary, that's great, but you've walked away from loving me, from keeping me as the primary focus of your life. Jesus, he's essentially saying here that you've allowed your love to grow cold because of all the other things that are more important. He might even say to us today, to contextualize this for us, you've gotten so busy and so involved with so many things, and you, you're doing all this important work in my name. You're enduring and you're fighting the good fight, but you've forgotten your first love. Earlier in the Gospels, when asked about what is the most important commandment, Jesus replies and he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then the second is like the first, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. Friends, your love for God should be the most important thing in your life. The thing that you guard from all the thieves and all the robbers and all the religious stuff that wants to come and take and kill and destroy what is precious in your life. This is why it's crucial for us to keep first things first. I see all the time that our life as a spiritual community, as a family here at Courageous Church, is all about Jesus because we want to love Jesus well. And I believe that if we can learn to love Jesus well, we'll love people well. We'll do the second commandment if we know how to do the first. Part of the struggle is that we're trying to do the second, but we ain't doing the first. And so people have got all sorts of different ideas as to what it means to love your neighbor right now, right? Jason, you better put on your mask, because if not, you're not loving your, your neighbor well. And we're so concerned from the outside, from external things looking in, trying to conform and pressure other people to meet our standard of love when God says, but did you love me with all your heart, your mind, and soul? The, the, the idea there is not that you compartmentalize your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. It means everything. It means all of your life for God. Jesus, in verse 5, says repent means change your mind about the way you've been doing things and go do those things that you used to do at first. What things? Well, like the early disciples, they spent time with Jesus. They communed with him, and they did so through two ways, worship and prayer. Worship and prayer. And in this way, I believe their relationship with God and with Christ was made vibrant and strong. And here's the kicker, guys. They did this because they wanted to, not because they had to. Your loving someone should not be precipitated upon you having to love them. If you're just loving people because you have to, you're missing the point. For many of us that are in a relationship with somebody, maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, maybe it's a, a spouse, you shouldn't have to be forced to love them, right? You should want to love them, correct? Yes. But why do we make our relationship with God so obligatory? Why do we make it an obligation? Why do we view the, the, the time, the short segment in our week that we set aside for worship and for prayer to be things that we check off our checklist? Guys, that's not the way God intended it to be. And if you're here tonight and that's you, listen, I want you to be set free. Because I believe there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Meaning 
that God doesn't want you to love him out of obligation or through coercion or by, by way of pressure. He wants you to love him because you realize he's a good father. He's a good shepherd and he's the way to life. Jesus says, I am the door. You want to experience my pasture, my presence? You want to be able to go in and out? You want to be able to experience all the things that I have for you? Then I'm the way. All these other things may be okay and good and necessary, but they're not going to lead you to the life that you want, that abundant life, that more than enough life, that life to the full. I believe this, all healthy relationships require time and they require communication. One of the most important ways and and I would say the most valuable way that we spend time with God is through prayer. He had it on there just a second ago. Prayer is this. It's simply communicating with God. It's having a relationship with him through an ongoing conversation. Through prayer, we share the intimate details of our heart and God shares the intimate details of his heart with us. It's bilateral, both ways. And hear me on this. It doesn't have to be complicated. One of the reasons why we don't pray is because number one, we were never really taught how. And number two, we think it's really hard. We think it's difficult. And when you think something's difficult, chances are you're not gonna do it, all right? There's things that I look at that are like renovation projects that I've got on my list for 2021 for my house, and they seem really hard, and so I'm probably not gonna do them unless I hire somebody. (laughs) And I think sometimes we approach prayer the same way. We're like, this is really hard. I don't think I could do this. Or man, Matt prays so elegantly. I don't think I could pray like Matt. Or like Jan, she prays down heaven. I don't think I could pray like her. Or you know what I mean, fill in the blank. But it's not supposed to be hard. It's not supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be like breathing, natural. Listen to what the Bible says about prayer. And I love this. In Matthew chapter six, verse six. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees will reward you. Notice how Jesus says when and not if you pray. Or how about Matthew 26, 41? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's hard, Jesus. (laughs) Watch and pray, Jesus says here, because he knows there are life thieves knocking at the door ready to come in and snatch and take away that which should be most important in our lives. What about Luke 18, 1? And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why does he say not lose heart? Because sometimes we lose heart. We get discouraged. We don't see the answer we think we should see or the results we want or the outcome that we thought we were gonna see. And he says, don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Paul says this, In the same way in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then, of course, the most famous prayer scripture of all, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Come on, somebody say great power. Great power as it is working. Friends, prayer is powerful. And your relationship with God should be powerful. And if you can step into this this year, 
and join us in what we're calling 21 days of prayer and fasting. I believe God is gonna renew and shift and change some things in your life through prayer. Can I get an amen tonight? And this leads me to my second point tonight, how we keep first things first and we do so by drawing closer to God through fasting. It says this in Matthew chapter four, verse one through three. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And we know from the rest of the story that Jesus prevailed, that Jesus overcame the tempter. And he did so in his fasting. Just think about this. What the devil was offering him was not just for Jesus to get a meal. Come on, how many stones do you think were out there in that wilderness? How many stones do you think could be found all throughout Israel? How many poor people could Jesus have fed with all those stones that could have been turned to bread? Do you think Jesus' struggle was just for himself? No, it was a burden. It was an intercessory burden for the people that he was praying for and fasting for. He could have easily turned the switch and fed everybody's belly that day. But that wasn't the way that God wanted to work, which tells me that there's actually something beyond food that is a reality for us if we'd be willing to lean into it. Listen to what Jesus says about it in his ministry later on in John 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, Rabboni, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples were like, all right, who fed Jesus? Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Guys, this is what fasting does. It opens us up to the reality that God has more for us than just filling our stomachs. That God has food that we know not of. And if we'd be willing to lean into that, we might just tap into something we've never experienced before. Jesus was nourished by his relationship with God the Father. He was nourished by it. He didn't need in and out. He didn't need, come on, name your favorite food. I just named mine. <laughs> he didn't need those things, guys. Disciples couldn't figure it out. But in the same way, I think fasting draws us closer because it reminds our souls that there's more to this world than food. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Did you know that fasting is actually a type of spiritual warfare against the life thieves that want to come and take life from you and crowd you and twist you up with thorns and cares? Come on. Fasting says no. It's a divine rebellion, a divine resistance against the enemy in his camp and everything that's represented in what the life thieves want to do in taking from us. But if we're willing to trust God, to trust that he has food that we know not of, then we can also trust him that he will sustain us. Guys, I believe God is the great sustainer. Jesus said it. You can't just live on Big Macs alone. You need the spirit of God in your life to sustain you. Because long after that meal, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get hungry again. You're going to go for that fourth meal. That burrito at 3 a.m. Is it just confession time again? Why is everything about food with Pastor Jason? Because I like it. And God says, precisely for that reason, you shall hand it over. I know tonight was heavy, but I, I want you guys to understand that 
God really wants us to experience the full abundant life that he's made us for this year. And if we'd be willing for 21 days to say at the very start of our year, God, we're gonna tithe an offering to you. We're gonna give you the first of our year. Our first fruit, our first offering is gonna be that we're gonna pray and we're gonna fast. I believe God will change things in our life that we couldn't change if we tried. That all the self-help books aren't gonna be able to fix. That all of your therapy sessions with your great therapist won't be able to help. God will do it. And he'll do it through prayer and fasting. And I wanna say this, I believe it's, it's a grace that God gives us to do these things. It's not a burden, it's a grace. You know what grace means? Gift. The gift of prayer the gift of fasting. That's how I want us as a church to view these next 21 days. So how are we going to do it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's how. At our website, courageouschurch.com slash first things first. We have, go ahead, take your phones out. Let's do this together. At the website, courageouschurch.com slash first things first. There we go. We have put a little prayer guide together for you guys. It's a 69, 68-page prayer guide, which lists seven models of prayer. What what do I mean by model? Seven ways that you can pray through the next 21 days. And you can click on that little blue prayer guide and download it for free. You can print it out or you can just open it up on your phone, your iPad, your Kindle, whatever you want to read it on. And it's seven models, seven ways of how we can press into dynamic prayer that I believe will change our relationship with God and our neighbors. So over the next 21 days, here's what we want you to do. Next slide. Number one, keep going. Next slide. Or go back. Nope, let's go the other direction. There it is. We want you to choose each day which model of prayer to use, okay? So maybe on the first day, you do the Lord's Prayer. Maybe on the second day, you do a tabernacle prayer. Some of you are like, what's a tabernacle prayer? Well, get into the guide, it'll tell you. (laughs) All right, and then set aside number two, a special time and place to pray. Let's be intentional about this. Some of you guys are morning people and God bless you. How do you do it? Jonathan, I don't know how you do it, sir. (laughs) It's an ongoing joke. Uh, Some of you are evening people. Some of you are afternoon people. Some of you are like midnight people. That's what I am, I'm a midnight guy. All right, but set set aside, set aside, Set aside a special time and place to pray and to do this. And then start with a known model. Start with something that's familiar to you and then try out something new. There's seven models so that you can experience new ways to pray. Remember what I said earlier? The main reason we don't pray is because we think it's really hard and we haven't been taught how to. Well, here's seven ways that are gonna teach you and equip you because I always believe, guys, this should be practical, all right? But I I want you to do this, to apply this. There's seven ways that you can start and you can try new things. Try new, new ways of praying that you've never prayed. I'll tell you what, it's, it's supposed to be fun. And it will be fun. Amen? All right, let's talk about the fasting. Go back to that next slide for fasting. There's a couple different types of fasts that we're going to be doing through the 21 days. A complete fast. And this is also at the website as well. A complete fast is when you abstain from food entirely. You drink water, that's it. Okay, some people like to augment with a little bit of juice. That's fine. Right, but the idea is that you don't eat any food whatsoever. Now, if you've never done a fast before, do not start off with this fast. You're not ready. You're a Padawan learner. You're not yet a Jedi Knight, okay? You've got to work your way up, all right? If you're bold and you want to go for it and you feel God telling you to do it, then do it. Be obedient. But if you've never done a 21-day food fast, don't start with that, guys. 
because you're going to get, you're going to just fall over. All right. But if God tells you to do it, do it. And if you fasted before, you know how powerful it is when you fast this way. All the 21 day fasts that I've done, have always changed my life and also helped me lose a lot of weight, which is awesome. Praise God. All right. The selective fast. Selective fast is what is sometimes referred to as the Daniel fast, where he ate no meats and he ate no sweets and no grains. All right. Some of you have heard of the Daniel's fast. The idea behind the Daniel's fast is this. Daniel rejected eating the king's delicacies. Who, what king? What are we talking about? The king of Babylon. The king of Babylon was offering him the best of the best. And he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to eat vegetables. He was the original vegan, guys. My, for my vegan friends, you're like, yeah, Daniel's our hero. All right? He was the original vegan. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it because he wanted to resist the forces or influences of Babylon in his life. He didn't want to become defiled by all the stuff. Come on, that's in our food. (laughs) And how much more now today than back then? Oh my gosh, we can only imagine. That's the selective fast. Partial fast means that you only fast for part of the day. Some people call this intermittent fasting. Anybody heard that term? Chris Pratt does intermittent fasting. We're all going to do that now. All right, it's gotten really popular because all the celebrities are doing it right now. But you know what? It's, great. it's a great way to fast and it has amazing health benefits. And then lastly, the soul fast. Some of you are like, I love food. Jason, you're crazy. I don't know what all this fasting stuff is about, but I want to fast something. And the soul fast is you unhitching your cart from social media and entertainment. Those two things are probably things that we should all fast right now anyways. Given what's been happening the last few weeks, we could all use a little offline time if I'm being honest, all right? But let that be between you and God. Remember, this is, there's a grace here. This is not obligatory. This is not coercive. You need to do what God tells you to do. For some of you, you don't like binge Netflix and you don't binge social media. So that's not an issue for you. So you're like, I don't know what everybody's problem is, you know? Because you haven't checked Facebook in like three months, <laughs> two years. <laughs> so if that's not you, that's fine. But these are supposed to be joyful and fun and I I really believe that together as a church, here's what I'll say to us. I've been a part of so many campaigns and movements to fast and pray through the years. Many times I sat back and watched other people do what God was calling me to do. And then I missed out on the blessing of it. Hear my pastoral heart for you. I don't want you to miss out on the blessing, guys, of what God wants to do in this next 21 days. So pray and fast and ask the Lord which one and then do it. All right? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.